0: Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, May 5th. In today's news, President Trump cheers on governors who are ignoring his own guidelines for how to safely reopen. The FDA steps up scrutiny of commercial antibody tests, and three people are charged in connection with killing a security guard who tried to enforce a store's mask policy. But first, the big idea. Three months into this coronavirus pandemic, America is on the verge of another health crisis, with daily doses of death, isolation, and fear generating widespread psychological trauma. Federal agencies and experts warn that a historic wave of mental health problems is approaching, with surges in depression substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicide. Just as the initial coronavirus outbreak caught hospitals unprepared, the country's mental health system is even less prepared to handle this coming surge. It was already vastly underfunded, fragmented, and difficult to access before the pandemic. The data show depression and anxiety are already roiling our nation. Nearly half of Americans report that the coronavirus crisis is harming their own mental health. A federal emergency hotline for people in emotional distress registered a more than 1,000% increase in April compared with the same time last year. Roughly 20,000 people texted that hotline last month. Online therapy company Talkspace reports a 65% jump in new clients since mid-February. The increasing demand for services follows almost exactly the geographic march of this virus across the United States. Researchers have created models based on data collected after natural disasters, terrorist attacks, and economic downturns that show a likely increase in suicides, overdose deaths, and substance use disorders. And yet, out of the trillions of dollars that Congress has passed in emergency coronavirus funding, only a tiny portion is allocated for mental health. At the same time, therapists have struggled to bring their practices online and to reach vulnerable groups because of restrictions on licensing and reimbursement. Community behavioral health centers, which treat populations most at risk, are struggling to stay financially solvent and have begun closing programs. Just as the country took drastic steps to prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed by infections, experts say we need to brace for this coming wave of behavioral health needs by providing widespread mental health screenings, better access to services through telehealth, and a sizable infusion of federal dollars. When diseases strike, experts say they cast a shadow pandemic of psychological and societal injuries. The shadow often trails the original disease by weeks, months, and even years. Years. And a big problem is that it receives scant attention compared with the disease, even though it, too, wreaks carnage, devastates families, maims, and kills. Mental health experts are especially worried about the economic devastation because research has established a very strong link between economic upheaval and suicide and substance abuse. A study of the Great Recession that began in late 2007 found that for every percentage point increase in the unemployment rate, there is a 1.6% increase in the suicide rate. Look, let me be real with you. This is a hard topic to talk about. Suicide experts and prevention groups have deliberately refrained from discussing too widely the death projections, and experts caution that reporting excessively or sensationally on suicide can lead to increases in suicide attempts, an effect known as contagion. And the factors involved in any suicide are often complex. We certainly want to avoid that, but we also don't want to just look the other way when millions of our fellow Americans need help. Because the reality is this suicide is preventable, and too many of us have lost loved ones to this scourge. The research is also clear on this interventions can make a marked difference. Interventions include limiting access to guns and lethal drugs, screening patients for suicidal thoughts, treating underlying mental conditions, and ensuring access to therapy and crisis lines for calls and texts. A coalition representing more than 250 mental health groups has just announced it will convene a national response to the problem of pandemic suicide, an effort that will include at least one federal agency the National Institute for Mental Health. They recognize that this approaching wave of mental injuries will be met in coming months by a severely broken system. In America today, one in five adults endure the consequences of mental illness each year, yet less than half receive treatment. As suicide rates have fallen around the world, the rate in the U.S. of suicide has climbed every single year since 1999 increasing 33% in the past two decades. Part of the problem is the markedly different way that we treat mental illness compared to physical illness. In normal times, a heart attack patient rarely has trouble securing a cardiologist, an operating table, or a hospital bed. But patients in mental crises consistently struggle to get their insurance companies to pay for care. And even with insurance, they struggle to find therapists and psychiatrists willing to take that payment. Those who can't afford it often end up paying out of pocket, and experts are panicking that such parity and access problems are only going to get worse. This pandemic has appended the functions of hospitals, insurance companies, and mental health centers. But amid the gloomy outlook, there are glimmers of hope. The sudden push into telemedicine could make services more accessible in years to come. And the national mental health crisis could spark needed reforms and a movement toward better quality treatment. And while almost everyone is experiencing some level of increased stress, the effect for many will hopefully be transient. Challenges like trouble sleeping and shorter fuses with loved ones. The difficulty is identifying and treating those who develop deeper, more worrisome mental problems such as post-traumatic stress disorder and severe depression. Speaking from her parents' home in Pittsburgh, Ananya Cletus said she has felt this increased strain. First came the closure of her school, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, bringing to an end her ambitious plans for the semester in computer engineering. Then came the loss of her therapist, who is forbidden by licensing rules from treating her across state lines, even over Zoom. And social media definitely hasn't helped. All those posts of people baking bread and living their best hashtag quarantine life have made hers feel often pitiful. Ananya, who's 23 and has bipolar disorder, says it was getting harder and harder to get out of bed. It took a few weeks and long conversations with friends to finally realize that there's nothing wrong with her. Since then, she's poured her energies into creating a daily routine, but also into creating an online guide for fellow students around the country who are struggling with mental health challenges amid the pandemic. She explained to my colleague, William Wan, this virus is messing with everyone. The anxiety, the isolation, the uncertainty. Everyone is struggling one way or another, and there should be no stigma in talking about it. If you or someone you know needs help, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 8255. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Also, the Crisis Text Line provides free and confidential support 24-7 via text message to people who are in crisis. All you need to do is text 741-741. That's 741-741. And that's the big idea. Here are... Three other headlines that should be on your radar, this Cinco de Mayo. Number one, a slew of states such as Texas, Indiana, Colorado, and Florida have pushed forward with relaxing social distancing guidelines, even as the number of people testing positive in many of those states has increased in recent weeks and testing continues to lag behind. White House recommendations released last month encourage states to wait to see a decline in cases over a two-week period, as well as having robust testing in place for frontline workers before even entering phase one of the gradual comeback. But President Trump and some of his aides have backed away from their own guidelines, which they issued to much fanfare, opting instead to hail the broad reopening that health experts say has started too quickly. During an interview Sunday night with Fox News at the Lincoln Memorial, Trump said he doesn't know of too many states seeing any increases in cases anymore. He said almost all 50 states are headed in the right direction. In reality, new coronavirus cases are increasing every day in about a third of our states, compared with just a few where there's been a sustained decline. A plurality of states are hovering around the same level. Instead of flattening the curve, we've seen something more like a plateau, which is better than the spike, but still, we're not flattening the curve, and we're not seeing a significant uptick nor downtick in daily cases. That is essentially the national trend. As of this morning, at least 68,172 of our fellow Americans have succumbed to COVID-19. Now, a draft government report that was leaked to us yesterday projects that new cases could surge to 200,000 per day by June 1st, with more than 3,000 new deaths per day if restrictions are relaxed too soon. The document predicts a sharp increase in both cases and deaths beginning about May 14th. The forecast stops at June 1st, but shows daily cases and deaths on an upward trajectory at that point. The White House and the CDC disavow this report, although the slides carry the CDC's logo. The creator of the model says the numbers are unfinished projections shown to the CDC as a work in progress. He has no idea how they ended up being circulated in a PowerPoint presentation, And the work contained a wide range of possibilities and modeling that wasn't complete and that was based on assumptions that weren't outlined in detail. But Justin Lessler from Johns Hopkins, who created the model, says 100,000 new cases per day by the end of the month is very much within the realm of possibility. He said most of what happens depends on political decisions being made today. A federal official tells us that the data was presented at a recent briefing for the National Response Coordination Center, which is part of FEMA. Number two, the Food and Drug Administration has been under fire for allowing more than a hundred commercial coronavirus antibody tests to go on the market without any review at all. Now the FDA is finally moving to assert oversight, saying the tests will have to pass agency muster, including meeting basic standards for quality and accuracy. Officials say unscrupulous actors have been marketing fraudulent test kits and using the pandemic as an opportunity to take advantage of Americans' anxiety. The action from the FDA is the latest about-face in the Trump administration's coronavirus effort as it seeks to fix a flawed testing response that's been criticized as either too restrictive or too lenient. Earlier this year, the FDA was hammered for moving too slowly in allowing academic medical centers and others to develop diagnostic tests for the virus that might have made them more widely available sooner. Then they swung too far in the other direction in allowing antibody tests to go unvetted at all. The result has been a flood of products of dubious quality that have confused hospitals, doctors, and consumers. The tougher requirements will make it harder to buy the questionable tests, but officials say there should still be enough reliable options. The agency has already authorized a dozen antibody tests for emergency use, including one by Roche. And it's working with companies on authorizations for an additional 200 serology tests. That's testing the blood. In related news, Bob Kadlec, one who was Trump appointed to be in charge of our country's medical stockpile, put a big focus on biodefense before this pandemic blew up. And it turns out our investigative reporters have uncovered, that's benefiting, big time, an old client of his. His office made a deal to buy up to $2.8 billion of the smallpox vaccine from a company that once paid him as a consultant. But that is a connection he did not disclose on a Senate questionnaire when he was nominated and confirmed to his post. And get this, under the agreement with Emergent Biosolutions, Cadlex having HHS pay more than double the price per dose that it had previously paid for the exact same drug. Number three. A man wore a KKK hood to go shopping at a Vons grocery store in Santee, California, after San Diego County started requiring face masks. Several shoppers captured photos of the hooded man, and several store employees repeatedly told him that he had to take off his hood or leave, which is what he eventually did. Meanwhile, in Flint, Michigan, three people were charged yesterday with the killing of a family dollar security guard over a mask policy. Prosecutors say that the security guard, 43-year-old Calvin Moonerlin, was fatally shot after telling a customer that her child had to wear a face mask to be able to enter the store. The woman yelled at him, spit on him, and then drove off. About 20 minutes later, her car returned to the store, and her husband and her son stepped out to confront the guard. This is according to investigators, witnesses in the store, and surveillance footage. The husband allegedly pulled out a gun and shot the guard. In Michigan, people are required to wear face coverings in stores, and stores are supposed to refuse service to anyone who isn't complying with the directive. The woman, the husband, and the son are all charged with first-degree premeditated murder as well as gun charges. In a different altercation, at another Michigan dollar store, a customer who balked at the idea of wearing a face mask wiped his face on an employee's sleeve. According to police in Holly, Michigan, the suspect said, quote, I will use this as a mask as he wiped his face on the sleeve of a young female clerk when she reminded him of the store's policy and the state's requirement. So th- this pandemic, <laughs> it's definitely bringing out the worst in some already really terrible people. But for every jerk wearing a clan hood or hooligan, rubbing his face on the sleeve of a young female checker just trying to do her minimum wage job, there are a hundred people or maybe a thousand people who are good and decent and want to help their friends and neighbors in this hour of need. In 1847, during the height of the, or I should say the depths of the Irish potato famine, reports that millions of people were facing starvation in Europe, reached members of the Choctaw tribe in Oklahoma. The Choctaw were no strangers to hardship. They had recently been removed from their tribal lands in Mississippi and forced to walk thousands of miles on what we now remember as the Trail of Tears, one of the darkest chapters in our nation's story. But even though these natives had scant material possessions and had lost nearly a quarter of their population during that arduous trial, they still managed to scrape together $170, about $5,000 in today's money, and send it to the Irish relief effort. Now, the Irish are repaying that debt by donating to another Native American tribe that has been especially hard hit by the coronavirus. The Navajo Nation has reported 2,400 cases and 73 deaths to date, giving it a higher death rate from COVID-19 than any state besides New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. Meanwhile, many Navajo households have no running water, making basic sanitary precautions a challenge. In response, a group of volunteers tied to the Navajo Nation set up a GoFundMe page that serves as a de facto food bank delivering water, groceries, and health supplies to elderly and immunocompromised natives across a vast reservation that spans Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado. To date, the page has raised more than $1.6 million. And most of that money has come from people in Ireland, who were moved to contribute in memory of the generosity of the Choctaw tribe during the potato famine, 173 years ago. Together, in this interconnected world of ours, from Ireland to the Navajo reservation, decency prevails. It must. Decency is how we will get through this. Together. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, May 5th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.